Poland, uh, things that come to mind, not a whole lot, no. Uh, Polish sausages? No, I don't know anything about that country. <laughs> Pierogies. Is that it? We hope it's not. That's what we're going to try to show you. Welcome to Polcast, Pole and all that jazz. Hello, I'm Małgorzata Bonikowska. And I'm Tomek Kniat. Welcome to the 14th episode of Polcast. In this episode we'll tell you... About building bridges with the past and across cultures. What you need to know when you are invited to a meal in a Polish home. It's about being a Pole down under, the Aussie perspective and about Arabs from Poland. Remember Ivona Malinowski's School of Polish for Adults in the area of Toronto? Here is another story I heard from her students. Okay. My story, I, I have Polish parents. When I was growing up, that was my first language. I didn't know how to speak English. When I was enrolled in kindergarten in Markham, the kindergarten teacher was worried that I would never learn English, so told my parents to stop speaking, so I don't know how to read or write it. And that's why I'm here. Also, on the 14th of September, um, Nadine, who takes a class with me, we're moving to Poland. So, yeah. Oh, so you're, you're doing it with your wife. And yeah. your, your, your wife has Polish roots? Or no, no, Nadine but doesn't sound very Polish to me. It's not. Uh, it's <laughs> Her roots are German, and she's fluent in French, German, Spanish, English, of course. So we've thought she can use her I mean, her language skills more in Europe than, than here. And um, my dad's had a business there for about 20 years. So in Poland? Yeah, so someone's got to take over. His business is all over the country. So. And what kind of business, if I may ask? It's uh, opticals. He has retail stores all over the country. And um, Are you ready? We'll see. <laughs> Are you ever ready, so, right? I mean, uh, he's pretty good. So we sold our place here. He bought us an apartment in Lublin because there's a good school a there. A beautiful place. Yeah, so, um, yeah. Despite the huge distance of 15,000 kilometers from Poland, Poles in Australia care about their mother country. What is it like to be a Pole down under? I asked Lucina Artemiuk, who is 13 hours ahead of me and 16,000 kilometers east. Although she was born in Australia, she's bilingual and bicultural, and her life is closely related to Poland and things Polish. Active in the Polish community life and organizations with a degree in Polish literature, teaching Polish to immigrants, she chose a career in the public service where she focused on multicultural affairs and work with ethnic communities. More recently, Lucyna Artemiuk became involved in the Polish Museum and Archives in Australia. Her extensive research into her own family history has resulted in her book From Poland to Wherever in the World. You were born in Australia. How did your family get there? My father came to Australia in 1948 aboard the Neva. The Neva was one of the three transports of Polish ex-servicemen who 
left England to come to settle to Australia. There was in total 1,500 of them. They were accepted in Australia under a specific migrant program for British people from British Army. They came and they had to work for two years in specific jobs that were designated by the Commonwealth Employment Service. A lot of them ended up in Tasmania to work on the hydroelectric scheme. Others worked in the sugar canes in Queensland, while others worked in the in the forestry. He landed in Sydney and then ended up in Western Victoria. There was a lot of single men in that transport. Some of them remained single. Some a lot of them married Australian women or had English women as wives. Uh, my father, on the other hand, uh, after the uh, Melbourne Olympics of 1956, came very homesick and went back to Poland. He mentioned to an, a former primary school friend in his village that he was looking for a wife. They then sent a telegram to my mother, who was on the other side of Poland, that she had to come over and they matched make my father with my mother. So my mother uh, migrated then to Australia in 1958. She was laughingly called an imported wife. For my mother, it was a major problem because she was the last remaining child of her parents and she was leaving them in Poland. Uh, my grandfather was heavily invalided. It was a major change for her to go to the other side of the globe. Now, we have to remember that in the 1950s, the notion of going to Australia from Poland or from Europe was extremely shock, a shock to the system. It was, you know, you went once. It was, rarely did you expect to go back. You know, maybe once in your lifetime you would go back, and that was it. At the, that time, Australia was a godforsaken place so far away. Branica Suchowolska, where my father came from, didn't have it. It was, I think... Right up to 26 years ago, there were only two landline telephones. Communication had to be through correspondence only, especially in the 40s and the early 50s during the worst Stalinist times. A correspondence from abroad was definitely carefully monitored. The notion of, of Australia for people from my father's village was extremely exotic. Is it still the case that people of Polish origin who live in Australia would just go to Poland once, maybe twice in their lives because of the distance? No, the the trips nowadays are more frequent. Uh, for those that came in the 80s and their children, because the links are still relatively fresh, there is a steady flow of sometimes second and third generation who are bilingual to go back and actually work there. With the people that came in the 80s, they will sometimes visit once every two years, once every three years. The tyranny of distance has been broken because, you, you know, you can communicate through Skype or, or the internet. Correspondence doesn't go for months on end because a letter that was sent from Poland to Australia would take at least a month in the olden days. Now, you you know, every, even the older people sometimes have access to the internet and can write an email. It's not worth going 
for two weeks or three weeks. You, if you go, you will go for two months or three months. It was only in the late 50s, early 60s that suddenly people were, you know, started flying. Prior to that, you know, you went by ship and it took a month, if not longer, to travel. Now, okay, from Australia, it's 26 hours. It is a, a tiring process and an expensive process. So we're talking about over $2,000 just for, to travel. What's the size of the Polish community living in Australia? 2011 statistics said that it was about roughly one, 170,000. So, so it is a very small number compared to the Canadian Polonia. The large concentrations are in the two biggest cities, Melbourne and Sydney's. And then, then you have certain groupings, well-organized groupings in places like Hobart, which is a very small town. But that's where most of the, uh, the ex-servicemen who came on in, the, in, in 1947 and 48 settled and established Polish communities there. There is a community in Brisbane, a small community in Perth and a small community in Adelaide, but they're very well organized as well. You, you have kept the Polish roots. Is that yeah. typical? I'm one of the fortunate ones that I am bilingual and I'm bicultural. So I've been very heavily involved both at a local and at a national level. There are some places like Hobart where I have not had an inflow of migrants from the 1980s and they have got a very strong network and also a strong sense of identity simply because they are that isolated from the ma what they call the mainland. I am not typical but there are more people like myself. Does the Australian government care about minorities in the sense that they would uh, encourage um, preserving yes. the identities, the culture, fund it? Definitely, yes. Uh, the Australian multicultural uh, philosophy is very similar to the Canadian philosophy. Our po uh, multicultural policies came into play in the 1970s, and also it was established with um, a Polish sociologist, Jerzy Zubrzycki, who was very instrumental in putting the philosophy and the policies together. Polish schools get government funding, Saturday schools. There is Polish as a second language at a secondary level that is run within the state education system. Ethnic organizations get funding for their activities, for projects, for festivals. Uh, the whole idea is that it's there to maintain the culture, adds and contributes to the wonderful cultural mosaic that, that is in Australia. What do you love about that country? The fact that it's very open. You can be who you want to be. You don't, you don't have to be somebody that society has forced you to be. The one thing that I found in Poland sometimes stifling and in the UK is that society places a label. You're a woman, so you have to be like this. You are of a certain sexuality, then you're, you're this. In Australia, you can be who you want to be. Nobody's going to force you to be anything other what you want. And that is the beauty of a multicultural society. For full-length interview and more information about Lutzen Artimiuk, please visit our website at mypodcast.com.
In Poland, being invited to people's home for a meal is more common than in the West, where people eat out a lot more. This is changing, of course, with the young generation, but if you are to meet with people who are in their 40s, 50s or older, it is more likely that you will be visiting them at home. It is a Polish way to bring something. If the hosts are in the age group we mentioned, it is a good idea to bring flowers for the hostess and maybe a bottle of alcohol for the host. The Polish way is to buy an odd number of cut flowers. Avoid carnations. In the communist Poland, they used to be typical flowers that women were given in their workplaces on Women's Day or other communist holidays. And white and red carnation bouquets were used at various communist festivities. If you share a meal with people in Poland, especially at their place, expect a lot of food. And don't be surprised when they push you to eat more. These are indicators of Polish hospitality. But let's start from the beginning. Before you start eating, it is customary to say smacznego, which is the Polish equivalent of the French bon appétit. A typical Polish dinner consists of soup, main course and dessert. Salads are not eaten separately as a separate course, but are served together with the main course, often on the same plate. As we said, Polish hosts will not leave it up to you how much you eat. They will insist you take more of every dish and won't take no for an answer. If you really cannot eat more, you have to be forceful in refusing, but be careful not to hurt the host's feelings. Compliment the culinary skills of the host profusely. And when you get to the end, before you leave the dinner table, say dziękuję, which means thank you. That's what you say at the end of the meal, just before getting up, unlike in English. Interestingly, many Poles would say thank you when they finish eating, even in a restaurant. Because, as they say, you thank not for the food, but for the company. Smacznego. Smacznego. For over eight centuries, Poland was home to the largest and most significant Jewish community in the world. The Second World War changed this landscape forever. The Nazis killed one-fifth of the Polish population, 90% or about 3 million uh, Polish Jews and approximately 3 million Poles. Today, young Jews come to Poland to visit the camps where the horrors of the Holocaust took place. The March of the Living is an annual educational program launched in 1988. I'm talking to Ellie Rubinstein, Canadian National Director of the March, religious leader in Congregation Habonim in Toronto, author, storyteller, educator, film producer, a charismatic and devoted bridge builder. Ellie, you have literally devoted your life to preserving the memory of those who perished during the Holocaust. But you don't just dwell upon the past, but you specifically focused on the future, which is the youth. This mission is closely related to Poland, with which you have very close con contacts. When I started off uh, my journey in, in Holocaust education, I really didn't have any preconceived notions about Poland. And so I didn't come with any of the prejudices that sometimes my, my fellow um, Jewish participants in the March of Living might have had. Some of them did, some of them didn't. You know, throughout our life's journeys, we learn different things. And one of the things you learn to do is whenever you hear an assumption, to question it and to check it out and to find out 
what is the real true story? Since the beginning of the March of the Living, myself, along with the March of the Living, has really transformed from a unidimensional program, which was solely to focus on the Holocaust. And it's broadened in a number of important areas. The first important area it's broadened is to understand what the Polish people went through. That while the Jewish people suffered a tremendous, tremendous loss during the Holocaust, the Poles suffered tremendously as well and to appreciate their sacrifice and their history. That was the first revelation that began to happen in the early 90s or mid-90s. The second thing that we began to do is also understand the, the complexity of Polish-Jewish relations, both the beauty and the r remarkable civilization that centuries of Jewish life in Poland was able to flourish because of the welcoming um, fertile ground that Poles are presented to the Jews, but also the difficult parts of that relationship, and to look at both sides with an objective and, and fair-minded eye. And the third evolution that happened um, was to also appreciate the tremendous uh, thousand years of Polish Jewish history that preceded the Holocaust. And um, it's been a wonderful journey. Subsequent to all of those changes, we also decided the following, that whatever conclusion you come to about the history of Polish-Jewish relations, because it's a complicated subject. There is no excuse for not building bridges today. And we have had so many experiences year after year after year where people in Poland have reached out their hands to the Jewish community, and when we respond, it's something wonderful to behold. Practically speaking, uh, how has the program changed uh, so well, that it serves the purpose of bringing Poles and Jews together? Well, I think the first thing is that we we really advocate strongly for the meeting of Polish uh, and Jewish youth together, that that we understand that you cannot hate somebody if you know their story. And we also see that among the young people, within minutes, as soon as you put young Polish uh, teens and young Canadian Jewish teens from Canada together in a room, or, or teens from any background, all of a sudden they're talking, they're having a good time, they're laughing, they're singing songs to each other. They automatically start to click with each other. And, it's, and, and that's the first thing, Polish-Jewish dialogue. I, I can never forget this. I remember a young girl from Montreal, probably in her early 20s from university, from McGill, standing up after a session of Polish-Jewish interaction. She said, I came to Poland wanting to hate you. But after meeting you, I can no longer do that. Like just that alone, that one moment alone is worth, you know, hundreds and hundreds of Polish-Jewish dialogue sessions. The second thing that we do is we have all our groups meet with Polish churches among the nations to meet them in person. And what's so interesting is that a fraction of people in the world have met Holocaust survivors. Much less people have met Polish righteous among the nations. In Canada today, there are thousands of Holocaust survivors. In Canada today, there's only one righteous Pole among the nations that's left alive. And you and I know that because we interviewed him, Franacek Poslowski, amazing, amazing human being. And so when these young students meet the Polish righteous among the nations, first of all, this is likely the, only, the first and last time that's going to happen. But secondly, in front of their eyes, they see somebody who risks their lives often to save total strangers. And the look of appreciation and love and gratitude on the faces of these young people, where they're meeting a hero, they're meeting somebody who was in such stark contrast to everything you've been seeing, the death camps and the piles of shoes and the ashes and the air and the killing fields. It opens up a whole new area, of, first of all, individual appreciation, appreciating that person for who he or she was, but also understanding, wow, there are people like that in Poland who did things that I may not even be able to do. And whatever stereotypes they might have had, 
certainly begin to crack at that uh, during the moment of that interaction. And the third thing I said, which is, isn't necessarily focused only on post-Jewish relations, is to take the young people to the Pauline, the Museum of the, the History of Polish Jews, and to expose them to the thousand years of glorious Jewish history that, that existed. And, and it existed in Poland more so than any other country. And I'll tell you something funny, because often when I lecture on Polish-Jewish relations, I play a trick on my audience. I say, so, which country had the largest population of Jews for, the, for, for more years than any other country in the last thousand years? And of course, the country is Poland. People say yes, and I say that's because, you know what that is? That's because Poland was the most anti-Semitic country in the world, right? And there's a pause. What? What did he just say? Because they've heard that sometimes that Poland is the most anti-Semitic country. And then I just juxtapose it with the fact that this is where most Jews lived and flourished for. And all of a sudden, there's that realization. Hmm, this is a complex issue. Because if it was the most anti-Semitic country, this is not where Jews would have flourished for close to a thousand years. And that's where the dialogue and the discussion begins. Do you think that Poles and Jews have found a path of understanding after so many years? Do you think there has been clear progress? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I mean, you know, the historical realities that, that, that uh, have made that happen, or at least helped that happen. I mean, I remember the first time I went to Auschwitz in 1989, I barely saw any references to Jewish suffering in Auschwitz. If it made reference to Hungarians or Slovakians, Or, or, or Lithuanians or Belgium, whoever, or, or people from Holland, didn't make the reference to the fact that they came there because they were Jewish. Of course, in 1989, Poland was still communist. But since then, Auschwitz alone, remarkable developments in, that, in the concentration camp the memorial, where everywhere you go, all the signs are, of course, in Polish and English and Hebrew. And the, 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 the camp, of course, memorializes the Jewish suffering. But it, it's not just an Auschwitz-Birkenau. I've seen so many... Uh, incredibly moving and touching uh, Jewish memorials throughout Poland. And this is, this is a testament to, the, to me what the true Poland is like. When communism fell and Poland was able to assert itself as a democracy, it chose to celebrate its Jewish heritage. It chose to welcome Jewish facts. It chose to forge ties with Israel. And in Europe today, Poland is one of uh, Israel's strongest allies. So I think, uh, I think, yes, I think it's moving very much in the right direction. Is there still anti-Semitism in Poland? Absolutely. There's still anti-Semitism virtually everywhere in the world. But I think there's been some dramatic changes over the last 30 years, almost 30 years. And I think the fall of communism is, is, is what, what propelled Poland on the path where it could assert its true identity. You will hear the second part of my conversation with Ellie Rubinstein in the next episode of Polcast. For more information about Ellie and his work, please visit our website at mypolcast.com. In the last episode, we played this sound, wondering if you can guess what it is and where in Poland you can hear it. What you just heard are horses. 
Poland has been known for its exceptional Arabian horses for decades. They are beautiful, incredibly elegant, and also incredibly expensive. The Arabian horse is one of the oldest human-developed horse breeds, apparently going back 4,500 years. Europe got Arabian horses mostly from the Ottoman Turks, who in 1522 sent 300,000 horsemen to Hungary. Many of them rode pure-blooded Arabians, captured during raids into Arabia. By 1529, the Ottomans reached Vienna, where they were stopped by the Polish and Hungarian armies who captured these horses from the defeated Ottoman cavalry. This is how they became the most highly appreciated and valued European horses. With the rise of light cavalry, the stamina and agility of horses with Arabian blood gave enormous military advantage to any army that possessed them, so many European monarchs began to support breeding them on large scale. Poland's first state-run Arabian stud farm, Janów Podlaski, in the eastern part of Poland, was established in 1817. By mid-19th century, other major stud farms of Poland were well-established, including Antonine, owned by the Polish Count Potocki. The Polish Arabian Horse Breeders Society was founded in 1926. The year 1927 marks the beginning of the official Arabian racing. In this way, the Polish Arabian Horse became famous around the world. The first Polish auction was organized in 1970 in Janów Podlaski. Soon, the Arabian horses from the stud began to reach record-selling prices. The most expensive horse to date is Pepita, which sold for 1,400,000 euros at the Pride of Poland auction in Janów Podlaski in 2015. Altogether, the revenues from selling Arabian horses in state-owned stats in Poland in 2015 reached €4,595,000. To learn about the history of the Polish Arabian horses, please go to our favorite online quarterly, Cosmopolitan Review, at cosmopolitanreview.com. It's time for our next sound from Poland. Here it is. Listen think, guess, where do you need to be in Poland in order to hear the sound, and what is it? You've been listening to the 14th episode of Polcast.
podcast is created, recorded and produced in Toronto by Małgorzata Bonikowska and Tomek Kniat. For full-length interviews, visuals and a lot of additional information, please visit our website at mypodcast.com. In our next episode, we will tell you how Polish avant-garde theatre is studied and admired all over the world. How Polish soups are perfect for hot summer days. Part one of our bi-weekly series, Smacznego, Eating Polish. And how tragedies from the past can bring people from different cultures together. And since we talked about Polish horses today, we leave you with a piece of film music composed by the great Polish contemporary composer Wojciech Kilar for a beautiful movie about great love for horses, directed by one of the best-known Polish film directors, Krzysztof Zanussi, entitled At Full Gallop. Thank you.